today, and that gift is wrapped in the package known by the name of Jim Bilby. Jim is a professor at Bethel University, has been so for over 20 years. Uh, He must be a good guy because he's been married to Michelle for almost 28 years, and they have four kids. An interesting thing I learned about Jim this week, uh, there's many things, but the thing that piqued my attention was that Jim has been and will be again a writer for NBA.com. So hopefully our Timberwolves will give him something good to write about this season. One can hope and pray. Jim, thank you for being here. Everyone, let's give Jim a warm Woodland Hills welcome. Good morning. So it's, uh, I am pleased to be here. Um, I'm actually a little bit uh, a little bit of fear and trepidation. I am standing in the place where Greg usually stands. <laughs> Happily, I do have a little bit of experience in uh, standing in a place that people were expecting Greg to be at. I didn't, I didn't see too many people running for the exit when I walked up. But um, in spring of 1999, I was not even done with my PhD program. And they asked me three days before spring semester to take a class that 40 students had registered for Greg, (laughs) to take Greg. And so I had to walk in on day one and inform them, no, you don't get Greg. Uh, You have to have this class for me. And um, (laughs) that went okay. I I guess I've been there for 23 years, so I I survived the ordeal. But it was a little daunting having to walk in uh, when they thought I was your TA. So evidently I look quite a bit younger than I do right now. No, it is my pleasure to be here. When Greg asked me to preach, he told me about the series that you guys were engaging, this idea of judgment. And this is a crucially important subject for us to think through as Christians. And it's also one that I think is like, it bothers us a little bit. We have questions and we have uh, worries about how to understand this crucially important question. How do we understand God's judgment, and can we trust God's character in the midst of judgment? And I am going to try to deal with an objection to that, this idea that we can trust God in his judgment. One, it's a question that I have dealt with a lot throughout my years, and it's, it's called the destiny of the unevangelized. What about those who have never heard the gospel and never have an opportunity to hear the gospel, especially given the fact that we want to affirm that salvation is through Jesus Christ, and yet there are some people that know nothing about Jesus. This is a problem, a question that I wrestled with my entire life. I, like some of you, was raised in a very theologically conservative context. Sometimes theologically conservative contexts do not have a lot of appreciation for theological questions. So I have a very distinct memory of asking my, I think, like fifth grade Sunday school teacher about this very question. And I asked, kind of, well, wait a minute, how about, what about people that never hear the gospel? And I was given kind of a quick answer there, a, a kind of a, even a, a little bit of a dismissive answer, and I didn't take that. I, I pushed in and I asked the second question. Have you ever noticed that? The first question, it's kind of okay, but if you ask the follow-up question, then you're in big trouble. And I... I got the good Christians don't need to ask those questions. Well, funny, I then internalized the message that I wasn't a good Christian because this this was a question that bothered me. Um, The 
inability to engage these questions was something that bore fruit. Um, my senior year, uh, my football coach uh, contracted cancer. Uh, they gave him six months to live, and he stretched dying out over years in five bouts of chemotherapy. Um, his death actually was this uh, incredible moment where I, I like just my faith died when my football coach died uh, as well. And I struggled with that mightily. And at the heart of my questions about the problem of evil was a deep and abiding question about how to understand God's goodness and how to understand God's uh, love and how to understand his goodness in judgment and how we thought about all of that. And so this was a question this problem that I wrestled with. And so at the, that time, I penned a letter. Actually, it was written to the girl I was dating at the time. I never ended up sending it because we ended up breaking up and it became irrelevant. <laughs> but this is what I said, uh, kind of sketching part of my loss of faith. I said, if Christ is the only way, and if there are millions who never hear of him, that any being worthy of the title God must have known this fact when he chose to create. And if he did know that millions, maybe billions, would never even have an opportunity to be saved, it is impossible to think of God as perfectly loving. As such, even though I am lucky to be among those who hears the gospel, I cannot believe in a God who makes the opportunity to be saved a matter of temporal and geographical luck. Now, I came back to faith eventually, and there's, that's a complicated thing, maybe a story for another day. But the center of my coming back to faith required replacing old pictures of God and his angry judgment and wrath with pictures of God that fit better the person of Jesus Christ and his love. And so I want to engage this question from that lens, and I want to try to understand how, how do we think about these people who never hear the gospel, and how can we understand God's love and judgment in a Jesus Christ-shaped way? Before we dive into an answer, let's try to understand the question a little bit more, because there are people that we might call just the unevangelized that I've already mentioned. Uh, I always call this person, for some weird reason, George. George is a denizen of Upper Mongolia uh, in the 9th century BC, right? There's no way George is going to hear anything about Jesus because Jesus hasn't been born yet. And there's no way he's going to hear anything about the revelation through the nation of Israel because he's separated geographically from. There's no way he's going to hear anything about the Christian message, or anything close. Now, that's a real problem. But actually, I think the question of the people who do not hear gets even more complicated than this. So in addition to the unevangelized, I think there are a group of people that I call the pseudo-evangelized. These are people that in some sense have heard the gospel, but really have not. The example that I use to describe this is Kunta Kinte. Kunta Kinte is a figure from Alex Haley's novel's Roots. He's born in 1750 in Gambia, taken as a slave at age 17, brought over to America, and over in America, he hears about this Jesus, he hears about this Christian God, and, he realized, and he's told by his white slave owners that this God thinks that the rape, murder, and torture of Africans is just fine. So Kunta Kinte rejects this God, and what's more, we think he's justified in that rejection. 
Because the good news that Kunta Kinte heard was not good news for him, right? So what do we do with people who maybe heard the name Jesus, but what's been taught, what's been associated with the name Jesus has been utterly bastardized and not worthy of Jesus Christ himself? And then maybe a third category. What do we do with I call these people the deeply wounded. Uh, an example, a person who was uh, placed in foster care, foster parents became abusers. Uh, this person reaches out to the local church and gets to know the youth pastor, but then the youth pastor becomes abu- an abuser as well. What do you do if you're that person? And this particular person that I'm thinking of chose to survive and chose to live and chose to go on, but did so by completely disabling her ability to trust. Chose not to trust anybody. What do we do with people whose life has kicked them around so much that they find it difficult to have the step of faith and the step of trust that's associated with belief in God? Do we really believe that God just says, okay, well, that's it, sorry. That's hard to believe for me. So these three cases, are the, for me, drive home the question, what about these people? What about George? What about Kunta Kinte? What about people who have been deeply wounded? Now, I'm going to propose an answer, but before I go there, let me try to set aside three answers that sometimes people want to throw out there, but I think don't work. So three inadequate answers. The first answer was the answer that I received from my Sunday school teacher so long ago and many times since. And by the way, the conservatives that I grew up with, I don't blame them. They were just articulating the same stuff that they were taught. They did the best they could, right? It does does us no good to be angry at them for what they really couldn't do any better with. Right? But this still was an inadequate answer. The answer that I received from my Sunday school teacher is, who are you to ask God this question? Who are you to say, God, you should have saved these people? And you know what? There's a certain truth to this. Because, yeah, if I'm the one standing up here, God, you need to do something, God might justifiably look down at me going like, uh, <laughs> excuse me? But I'm not doing that when we're asking these questions. Our theological questions are not demands that God to like, you know, figure things out for us. What they are is reading the scriptures. And in this case, I'm reading the scriptures and I'm seeing the person of Jesus Christ and I'm seeing his love for all people. I'm reading 1 Timothy 2.4. God desires all people to be saved. 2 Peter 3.9. God desires that none should perish. God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked, but rather that they return and repent. I'm reading in scripture that God does not want these people to have no chance. So this is not a, God, you need to figure things out. This is, God, I'm reading your scripture, and what it says in there makes me think that you have a problem with some people not having a chance, right? So this isn't me demanding that God save anybody. Second uh, possible solution, second inadequate answer to this problem is some people say, well, there are no unevangelized. And they do so by appealing to Romans 1. Romans 1, 18, rough paraphrase, 
says that God has made his divine qualities, his divine nature apparent through what he's created. So people are without excuse. Nobody can say, God, I didn't know. Okay, that's interesting. I think there is a sense in which people look at creation and go, whoa, there's a creator. But think about it for a brief second. Kunta Kinte isn't wondering if God exists or not. He's wondering whether this picture of God that he has been told about, whether this God is actually a good God. That's the question. It's not a question about God's existence. I think there is a very real sense in which when we look at creation, we're drawn to the idea of a creator. The question, though, at the heart of the destiny of evangelized question is not about whether God exists. The question is, is this God a good God, and can we trust this God in his judgments, in his salvation? The last uh, inadequate answer that I'm going to engage before I try to articulate a better one is the question that basically says, well, why do we need Jesus? Can't we just say God loves everybody and then leave it at that? Why do people have to know about Jesus Christ? What's so important about that? I'm going to suggest that if we believe, and I think we do, and I think this has been taught from this stage quite forcefully, If we believe that Jesus Christ is the perfect self-revelation of God, that if you want to know something about God, you look to Jesus. If you want to say something about God that you can't say about Jesus, you should think twice about that. If Jesus is truly the perfect self-revelation of God, then leaving Jesus out of the equation when we talk about salvation is a problem. The consistent scriptural teaching John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but, but through me. Acts 4, 12, uh, there is no other name given on heaven by which you may be saved. The consistent scriptural teaching is that salvation is the relationship in Jesus Christ. So if we truly believe that Jesus is the full self-revelation of God, then it's problematic to understand salvation apart from relationship with Jesus Christ. So we're looking for an answer here that takes seriously God's love for all, God's desire that all be saved, and takes seriously the idea that salvation is through a personal direct relationship with Jesus Christ. How might we do this? And I'm going to offer you a proposal, an idea. It's an answer to the destiny of an evangelized problem. There are other ones out there. But I'm going to suggest one particular answer. And the answer is called or I call it, post-mortem opportunity. Post-mortem as in after death, not post-modern. Post-mortem. The key idea of post-mortem opportunity, if you're going to state it in a nutshell, is this. If God truly desires all to be saved, and we think there are some people that do not have an opportunity to hear the gospel in this life, then I think we have good reason to believe that God will provide a post-mortem opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. I actually received first glimpse of this uh, from C.S. Lewis. If I was actually really honest with you all, a large percentage of my theology had its at least initial intuitive form from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Last Battles, one of the, the last book of the Narnia Chronicles, he articulates a 
uh, a picture of the end times. And on the day of judgment, or the equivalent day of judgment, he says, or he writes about it in this way. Uh, Aslan, Jesus, is standing in this stable door, right? And all the people of the world are in a line coming up to him. He says, the creatures came rushing on. But as they came right up to Aslan, one or other of two things happened to each of them. They all looked straight into his face. I don't think they had any choice about that. But when some looked, the expression on their faces changed terribly. It was fear and hatred. And all the creatures who looked at Aslan in that way swerved to their right, Aslan's left, and disappeared into his huge black shadow. The children never saw them again. I don't know what became of them. But the others looked at the face of Aslan and loved him, though some of them were frightened at the same time. And all of these came in at the door on Aslan's right. So what you have is a picture of the day of judgment where people look at the God that actually exists and decide whether they can love this God, decide whether they can bow a knee to this God. This view takes seriously the idea that God desires all people to be saved because everybody has an opportunity to hear the gospel, to understand who God is and respond with relationship to this God. And it's also then an emphasis, the primary emphasis on the person of Jesus Christ because there's nobody that is being saved that isn't through relationship with Christ. Now, when I uh, articulate this idea uh, in various venues, I often get the question, well, that sounds great. Where's that taught in Scripture? That's a good question. First, though, let's think a little bit about the question. Because sometimes, Scripture doesn't deal with the questions that we want Scripture to deal with. Right? Have you ever noticed that? Scripture's really, really clear. God created. It doesn't give us all the answers that maybe we want about the whys and wherefores and the exact timing of all that. Scripture's really, really cl- clear that God's going to wrap this all up and that Jesus is coming back but doesn't give us all the information, again, about the exact timing, whether that's happening on a Tuesday or what, anything like that, right? So oftentimes, we have questions that Scripture does not directly answer. I don't think Scripture gives a direct, specific answer to the destiny of evangelized question, but that doesn't mean it doesn't say anything that is relevant to it. There, I think Scripture says a couple of really important things. The first, and maybe most clear, is Scripture gives a clear sense about God's love for the lost. And nowhere is this seen more powerfully than in the parable of the lost sheep. Uh, Luke 15 records Jesus talking to the Pharisees, right? And he's talking to the tax collectors. He's talking to, he's talking to the religious leaders, right? And he says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. You have to, it is so clear the message that is being articulated there. 
that Jesus Christ leaves, the good shepherd leaves the 99 who are safe in the fold, and he goes and he seeks the lost sheep. Now, Scripture is really clear. There's nothing about this sheep that's like, this is not the smartest sheep, because sheep generally aren't very smart. This is not the most valuable sheep. This is not the largest sheep. This is not the best. This is what makes this sheep special is that this sheep is lost. And because God, because the good shepherd is one who seeks the lost sheep, Jesus, the good shepherd, goes out and finds the lost sheep. So I think there are many passages that clearly and powerfully teach that God desires the salvation of the lost and God seeks the lost sheep. There are also two passages that are tantalizing in suggesting the possibility of post-mortem conversion. Both of these are from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. The key passage there, in which he also made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Christ, during his three days uh, in the grave, when he, was cru- when he was crucified and died, he goes and descends into Hades. And the early church has this powerful notion they, 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 they referred to as the harrowing of Hades, where Christ defeats the powers of death. And there's great imagery about Christ knocking down the walls of death and making possible these people that are held in bondage to death to be brought to life, right? This notion of the harrowing of the Hades, this is happening in a post-mortem context. These people are in Hades, the place of the dead, right? And so the early church saw this as something that was real and powerful and could be expected. The second passage is from 1 Peter 4, 6 says, for this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they, may, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, this is rather straightforward text, right? The gospel is preached even to those that are dead. Those that want to get rid of this idea of a post-mortem presentation of the gospel or want to sidestep this, do it in one of two ways. Sometimes the people say, well, the dead there are the spiritually dead. But of course, that doesn't make any sense with the actual reading of the passage because the passage says, even to those who are dead. There's even to those that are spiritually dead, well, of course, who else needs to hear? The, the spiritually dead are the people that need to hear the gospel. So it doesn't make any sense with the actual reading of the passage. The other way to by, bypass this is to do what the NIV does, um, Maybe you read the NIV, that's great. One of my friends who's a uh, New, uh, New Testament guy, he refers to the NIV as the new inaccurate version. Sorry. It's, <laughs> it's generally pretty good, but occasionally it does some silly things. Like here, the NIV actually just adds a word that isn't in the original language at all. What it says is this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, implying they heard the gospel before when they're alive, but now they've passed on. 
But that's not at all in, in the passage, and it also uh, really distorts the meaning of the passage here. So there is enough in Scripture to give us a very clear sense that God desires uh, all people to be saved, that God goes and seeks the lost, right? There's also enough in Scripture to give us tantalizing clues about the possible post-mortem presentation of the gospel. Now, there are questions about this uh, particular view, and there's all sorts of implications of this, and let me just try to engage a few of these. I'm going to deal with four questions or objections about this idea of a post-mortem presentation of the gospel. First, who receives this? Well, to be perfectly honest, I'm not entirely sure. But what seems clear to me is that God knows who needs to hear the gospel and who does not. Now, could it be the case that all of us have a picture that is skewed in some shape, way, or form, and that we need to stand before God and see the God that actually exists and bow a knee to that God? Maybe, right? I have a hard, I have a hard time saying with real dogmatism one way or another, there is going to be some people or they're not going to be. But what I do know is that God knows all of our hearts perfectly and that God knows if there are people who have seen a picture of the gospel that is skewed enough that they need a post-mortem opportunity, right? So that, is, that seems to me to be clear. What would this look like? Second question, what would this look like? Now, again, I think there's a lot of questions. Scripture does not give us a lot of specific information about the day of judgment. What I do think Scripture is clear on is that there will be a day of judgment. And I also think Scripture, uh, it's entirely compatible to see this day of judgment as involving what you might call some purgatorial clarifying. Now, when I say purgatorial, you might wait. Do you mean the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory? No, I don't mean that, right? I don't think the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory where you have this, well, you're already saved and you just need to be punished a little bit so you're even better. I don't think that's, I don't think that's uh, what we're talking about. Instead, think of the idea that is taught in 1 Corinthians 3 of a refining fire. A process whereby what we have done and who we have been is clarified for what it is. And the things in our life that aren't directed toward Christ are burned away, and what's left is real and clear and clarified, right? Um, I can't imagine that if anybody comes before and stands before God on Judgment Day, that if there was a question, do you, you know, this per- Jesus would ask this person, do you love me? And this person like needed four seconds to answer that question or needed 40 seconds to answer that question or 400,000 seconds that God would say, oh no, sorry, your time's up, right? So if there was an opportunity, if there was a, 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 uh, a, opportunity for this purgatorial cleansing, this clarifying experience, I do think the day of judgment, as taught in scripture, is perfectly compatible with that sort of thing. Third question. Who could say no to Jesus? 
right? That is, I think, a crucial question. I think when sometimes when I say this idea, there's a postmortem opportunity, everybody's like, well, of course you're going to say yes to Jesus. But when we have this picture of Jesus, I want to suggest sometimes the picture of Jesus we have, if I can make a reference to the, the uh, acclaimed movie Talladega Nights, where Ricky Bobby says, I like to pray to seven-pound, three-ounce baby Jesus, cute baby Jesus. Let's keep in mind that Jesus is also the almighty creator of the universe. And when we stand before Jesus Christ, our first response will be fear and awe, right? Yes, God is absolutely loving, but he is also the almighty creator of the universe. And what's more, I also think that it's important for us to get clear on what is the question that's going to be asked. If we are standing before God on judgment day, will it be Jesus saying, hey, you can hang out with me over here in heaven. We've got wings and we've got halos, clouds. It's very cute. Or you could burn in hell. <laughs> Nobody then says, oh, no, I'd like that hell sounds fun. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, I'm down with this. But that's not the question. The question that will be asked is Milton's question. The question put by Milton's Satan, do you want to reign in hell or serve in heaven? Are you willing to bow a knee to the creator of the universe or do you want to be your own God? Beholden to no one, the number one of all reality, all of your reality. That's the question. So who could say no to Jesus? Well, maybe somebody who refuses to bow a knee to anybody other than, than themselves. The other thing here that's crucially important, who could say no to Jesus? Well, it depends if you take the concept of free will seriously. If you take the concept of the concept of free will seriously, the very ability for us to say yes to God and embrace relationship with God seems to require the capacity to say no, right? So if we take the concept of free will seriously, and I'm betting you've uh, been preached to add a little bit about the concept of free will here. If you take that concept seriously, it seems like it makes it possible for people to say no. Last question. So if people receive a postmortem presentation of the gospel, doesn't this take away, eliminate our motivation to spread the gospel here and now? After all, if people hear at the end, and God's going to do that, and he's going to do so much better than us, maybe we should just kind of relax and we don't have to do anything right now, right? If God's going to kind of handle everything in the end, let's just all chill and sit back and then we don't have to worry about anything. So the worry about this view is it eliminates our motivation to spread the gospel now. Should it do that? No, it shouldn't. First and foremost, the point of relationship with Jesus Christ is not to just punch our ticket to heaven. This is the great American heresy that Christianity is just about saying magical world, words so we can get our fire insurance. We don't have to go to hell and we get to hang out with Jesus at the end. But it doesn't matter what we do now. That's, what, what, what was the word you said I couldn't use? Oh, yeah, that's BS. That, that, that's wrong. That's false. Right? The, <laughs> that's that, yeah. So 
when we think of this idea, oh, I don't need to do this, we're thinking about heaven as like the point of relationship with God is just this heavenly thing. The point of relationship with God is to live here and now for God, to, to overcome pain and injustice right here and now in God's name, to love God, to love neighbor right here and now. And to partake in the joys of doing all of that right here and now. Yes, there is a heaven. But the point of Christianity is not just going to heaven. It's right here and right now. So there's nothing that suggests that even if we think, oh yeah, God has a postmortem opportunity for people who need it, that that means we don't do anything. So let me give you what I'm gonna, I, I want you to kind of have as a takeaway here. It has to do with this idea of the mission of God. God is on a mission to reconcile himself to creation. God is on a mission to bring about reconciliation and to overcome the sin that's in this world and make possible relationship with him. And what's more, God allows us to participate in that. And that is so powerful and that is so, so amazing and so cool. It is for our benefit and God does this because he doesn't, doesn't just care about the end. He cares about the process. He cares about how this happens. So we are allowed to participate in this moment. We are allowed to participate in his task of reconciling the world to himself. So along these lines, I, I, I saw this so clearly uh, about 12 years ago um, when I built a house. Uh, we, you guys know, 2010, the market kind of collapsed. So that means somebody on a Bethel salary could afford to build a house. Um, and so I spent the entire summer uh, working on this house and building this house. And my, uh, my wife dropped off my youngest daughter. At, at the time, my youngest daughter was six. And she says, she's just going to hang out with you, and, and I'm going to run some errands. I'm like, okay, that's great. So my daughter, Malia, is running around having fun, and eventually she came, and I'm, I'm building some, some walls in the house at this time. I'm framing up some walls. And she says, Dad, I want to help. <laughs> when she said that, I had two thoughts in my head. The, I need to get things done. I, I only have three more weeks until I get my certificate of occupancy. I have all this I need to do. This isn't going to be helpful. No, no, this is a bad idea. But then I also had the thought, no, this would be so fun. This would be amazing. We got to do this. Happily, the, this side won out over all of that. And I was like, okay, yeah, let's, let's do this. So for 45 minutes, she helped me <laughs> build the house. And honest, in 45 minutes, we did, we might... I could probably have done that amount in maybe 45 seconds of work. <laughs> this was not real effective, but it was so amazing, and it was so awesome. And the reward for that was after we'd finished the house and we'd moved in, all the family came over to see the house, and there's like, in my family, there's this entire gaggle. Uh, I, I don't know what you call a bunch of girl cousins. I call them a gaggle of cousins. Maybe it's a pod of cousins. I don't know, right? But it's a, an entire gaggle of cousins comes in, and Malia runs up to him and says, let me show you where I helped Daddy build the house. Right? And that was just so amazing, and it, was, and it was my joy to see her be able to participate in this. Just that is, as it is uh, our honor to be able to participate in what God is doing. Keep in mind, 
I wasn't letting her build the, low, the main load-bearing wall in the house. <laughs> I was not saying, Malia, why don't you just go ahead and finish up this house? Oh, I'm not, I don't need to check it. We'll just, you know, move in and just hope it all stays up. Ultimately, I wanted her to help, but I wasn't going to let her do anything that would bring the house crashing down on our heads. The mission of God is still God's mission. And it is our opportunity to participate in that, and that is our honor and joy. But let's not, let's not fall into an evangelistic deism where God says, I'm going to be hands off, and I'm not going to do anything, and I'm just going to tie myself to people's inability to connect with people and share the gospel. This is still ultimately God's mission. And because it is ultimately God's mission, I think because Jesus Christ goes out and seeks the lost sheep, that we can ultimately trust God's character in judgment, even with people who have not heard the gospel. Join me in prayer. Lord Jesus, this topic of judgment is a difficult one. We wrestle with it. There's so many layers of questions, but help us keep directing our attention back to who you are, to your love, to your uh, desire to go out and seek the lost, to all the things in Scripture that tell us, that show your heart for us, Lord, let us focus on these things. And Lord, thank you that we have an opportunity to participate in what you're doing in this world. And we pray that as we do this, we would experience the joy that we see when people come to know Jesus Christ and see the freedom there. We thank you for this opportunity to think, to worship as a community, and we ask that you would bless us in this day. In your name, amen. amen. Let's give Jim a big thank you. Thank you, Jim. We appreciate you sharing with us today. Hey, we want to remind you guys to tune in on Tuesday afternoon to the MuseCast while Dan and I talk a little bit more about what Jim shared with us today. Also, if you'd like to talk about the sermons with other people from around the globe, gathering groups are open and you are able to hop in there and have some great sermon discussion with other folks and get to know some people. If you are here and you would like prayer, don't leave carrying a burden. We've got folks that will be here up front ready to connect with you and agree with you in prayer. And if you are tuning in, they will also be available to pray with you online as well. And always, if you have kiddos and you're going to be here next week, make sure you let us know so we can save your spot back there. Thank you for being here. Be blessed, you guys. And let's begin to really think through what Jim shared, and let's walk that stuff out. Be blessed. Go and love on the world.